Hey, have you ever put off doing something? You ever avoid anything? I can tell you what's on my list. Going to the dentist, going to the doctor. Some of those things that you can ask our dental hygienist how many times I have to reschedule my appointment. Sometimes I, there's just things we avoid. They can help us, but we don't, we don't take advantage of that. We avoid them. I remember um, when I was a boy, I think I've told this before, when I was a kid in our neighborhood, we had a big backyard and there was a big pole building out back that had a window. Um, and it was owned by an elderly couple that I never saw come out of the house. So one day I was just uh, throwing little rocks up at the window. Why, you ask? Um, I think I was just looking for trouble. I broke the window. I remember running into the garage, hoping no one saw me. And then for the next year, at least the next year, I walked past that window and remember thinking, boy, I sure hope someone tells that couple about their broken window. No. I thought, I just tried to ignore it. I avoided it. I didn't want to deal with it. Now, I bring all this up because just like I delayed, I, by the way, I eventually did go and uh, talk with that couple and apologize to them. Uh, boy, I delayed, though. The reason I bring that up is because if you're following along in the notes, what we're going to read today in this series we're studying in the Psalms is that David delayed writing this song of confession. As we've talked about already, the Psalms, in Hebrew, that word means songs. So originally, all 150 of the psalms were set to music. Now all we have is the lyrics. We don't know the melodies anymore, but this used to be the prayer book, the song book of God's people for years. So I want to just ask, if you would, um, as we think about David delaying writing this song of confession, I'm going to actually explain that in just a little bit. But would you open your Bibles... Uh, to Psalm 51. That's what we're going to look at today. This is uh, David's Psalm of Confession, and uh, it's one that he delayed writing. And uh, if you haven't been with us, we're in a series. We're near the end. Next week is the last week. We're in a series, as you can see from the banners, called Awakening, Psalms of the Soul. And we're trying to just learn some of the things that God wants because we believe he wants to wake us up to uh, wake us to a fresh relationship with God through these psalms that we've been studying. And so Psalm 51 is a beautiful song of confession, but David delayed in writing it. Now, what I hope you'll see this morning if you're following along is that Psalm 51 helps us fight shallow repentance in ourselves. Psalm 51 helps us fight shallow repentance in ourselves. We've been saying for the last two and a half years now, I know some of you know this by heart, that we believe God is calling us as a church to declare war on shallow Christianity beginning with ourselves. And that's because we see just the danger of just living on the surface with God, just living a shallow kind of life with God. And uh, this psalm not only shows us that you and I are shallow whenever we delay practicing true repentance, but if you're following along, I'm shallow when I deny, deflect, or downplay my guilt. We're shallow whenever we deny, deflect, or downplay our guilt. You know what that means when I say deflect? Deflect means, well, what about them? 
You know, I got, I know you're trying to deal with something in me, but I would rather actually pay attention to what they're doing. Wouldn't you, God? That deflecting kind of spirit or downplaying, minimizing it, saying, oh, it's not, you know, it's not that bad. And whenever you and I do that, we move in the wrong direction. We move towards shallow. We move towards just being surfacey people, surfacey believers. Now, I don't know if you need this psalm today. I do. I was thinking this weekend as Trish and I moved our son to Ohio and made the long drive back and stuff, I saw stuff in myself that was shallow. Uh, there was a defensiveness. There was a, hey, you know, spirit, kind of proud spirit. And I remember thinking to myself, I was not real quick to practice true repentance. And uh, boy, that's just, that's a problem. Now, some people might say, well, like, why is this important? Like, why do we need to study Psalm 51? You all had a straw, hopefully, on your seat when you came in, I hope. If you want to take that out, do you mind just taking that out? Some of you have seen me talk about straws before, because we're a deep church. (laughs) No, honestly, straws have helped me think about something. The Bible says is that God wants there to be a flow, a relationship, a pipeline between us and him. He wants us to know that flowing power between his heart and ours. And what the Bible tells us is that when you and I get wrong with God, or we do something that is not what he wants us to do, it doesn't just break a rule, it breaks a relationship, it hinders it in some way. So if you'll take this straw and just pinch it. What it does when you and I don't practice true repentance is it brings about a pinch or some kind of twist in our relationship with God. There's three different words you're going to see in this psalm today that David uses that he asks God forgiveness for. The first is transgressions. Transgress means to step across a boundary line that's forbidden. It is rebellion. It is saying, I don't care if that's the line, I'm doing it anyway. The word for iniquity, that we don't use that often, but iniquity means perversion. It means depraved. It means twisted. For some of us, our straws might look more like this, all twisted up. And that relationship with God, that flow is no longer flowing freely. It's gotten a twist in it, iniquity. The third word that he uses is the word sin. It's an archer's term that aiming for the bullseye misses the bullseye or falls short even of the bullseye. And this isn't just like an oops thing. This is aiming at something else or not aiming seriously at it. And that David realizes that he is, he is dealing with transgressions, iniquity, and sin in his life. And so why, why do we need that? It's because all of us deal with transgressions, iniquity, and sin in our life. The question is, how do we deal with it? And Psalm 51 shows us that although David delayed, he offered up one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance that has been helpful to believers down through the ages. It's been helpful to me. And again, why do we need this? A couple reasons. Look at this. Proverbs 28, 13. Look at what it says. Whoever conceals their sins does not what, friends? Prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds what? Mercy. 
Now, last week we learned that sometimes the wicked prosper like crazy, but only for a time. The idea is those who conceal their sins will never prosper in the long run. But when we confess them and renounce them, we find mercy. And here's another reason. Look at Acts 3.19. I love this. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Read this last phrase with me. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You and I can miss those times of refreshing if we don't practice true repentance. So shallow repentance equals shallow fellowship, but true repentance equals true fellowship. And that's what Jesus wants us to know this morning. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at an overview of Psalm 51. Then we're going to talk about what would true repentance look like in your life and mine if we were to practice it more. And then we're going to actually have a time available for us to practice that today. So would you pray with me, please? Now, Lord, I, I never have fully understood how you do it. It's a mystery to me how you open your word and help us see the connections in our lives. My prayer is that you will deal with me, and as I let you deal with me, you will be free to deal with whoever else in this room you want to deal with. And I know we've often prayed that you would come to every seat, that people would know that there's a God in this world that knows them by name and knows them by heart and wants a relationship of true fellowship. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so Psalm 51. Did I invite you yet to turn to Psalm 51? Okay, because you know, when we have three services, I'm not always sure what I already said. So Psalm 51, right here in the middle of the Bible, let's look at Psalm 51. Um, first thing I want you to notice if you're following along in the notes is that David humbly agrees with God and pleads for mercy. You know what, actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we talk about that, let's look at the little print underneath Psalm 51. In my Bible, here's what it says. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. There's a section in the Bible, I've listed it up at the top, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You don't need to turn there right now, but let me just recap what this means. In other words, it means that David wrote this song after the prophet Nathan came to him. When did the prophet Nathan come to him? Most scholars believe probably a year after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. How do we know that? Because a baby has already been born. Here's what happened. David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest in his family. His own family didn't even recognize him. God took him from being a shepherd boy and anointed him to be king of Israel. But before that was fulfilled, he killed Goliath with a slingshot. He also was chased down by King Saul for 10 years and lived on the run. And then he became king. And when he became king, it opened up one of the greatest eras of true worship in Israel that ever existed. He was a man after God's own heart. This was not some shallow follower of God. This was someone who loved God to the depth of his heart. But as he began to prosper, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 11:1, 1, when kings go out to war, David didn't go with his soldiers. He stayed home, and with that extra time on his hands, one day he stood on his roof and looked down, and there was a beautiful woman bathing. Through his servants, he found out that she was a married woman, in fact, married to one of his finest soldiers named Uriah. 
found out her name was Bathsheba, found out she was the daughter of someone, and he said, that's okay, I'm the king, I'm going to do it anyway. He committed adultery with her, slept with her. She goes home, and shortly after that, she tells him, I'm pregnant. She sends a message. When he finds that out, rather than facing what he had done, he delays it some more, and he tries to cover up what he did. So he asks for that soldier to come off the battlefield to meet with him. He tries to get him drunk. He tries to get him to go home so that he will sleep with his wife. Why? So that then it would never be suspected that he did it, that David was the father. But instead, Uriah is a better man than David, and he says, how could I go home when all my fellow soldiers are out in the battlefield? I'm not going to do that. That would not be right. And so David, realizing he can't change this guy's mind, says to the general, in fact, he sends the message with Uriah back to the battlefield that says, take him to the front lines, pull back, expose him so the enemy will kill him. And that's exactly what happens. And chapter 11 ends with this incredible sentence. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, let me read the first 14 verses of 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David when he came to him. Remember, Nathan's a prophet. came about a year later. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children, shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. You see what Nathan's doing? He's telling a parable. Sometimes when we're so self-protective, so self-defensive, God has to find other ways to get our attention. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. This was fulfilled later with Absalom, his son. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And that's what happened. 
But the Bible tells us that David wrote this psalm that we're studying this morning after Nathan had come to him. He delayed a year. It took him a long time to get to the right place with God again. But when Nathan came to David and helped David see where he really stood with God, David's response was remarkable. And it has given hope to people far from God over the centuries. It's given hope to believers. And so, as we study this together, let me say it again. The overview of Psalm 51 is that first, David humbly agrees with God and pleads for mercy if you're following along. David humbly agrees with God and pleads for mercy. Another word for agreeing with God is to confess. That word means to say the same thing as God says. David humbly agrees with God and pleads for mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is receiving sympathy and compassion when someone could punish us. He received that and he asked for mercy. He realized he didn't deserve it, but he asked for mercy. Would you read verse 1 and 2 with me in that first gray box out loud as we look at Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I'll read verse 3 and then invite you to read verse 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Read verse 4 if you would with me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Verse 5 and 6 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. He says, you know what you're looking for, God? is truth, not deception. You're looking for me to be real with you, and I have not been real with you. He agrees with God and pleads for mercy, and you see, he absolutely understands the consequences are just. No longer trying to defend himself, no longer trying to say, hey, what I did was okay. No longer calling adultery an affair, calling it adultery. Greed, stealing, coveting, murder. He names them as God names them. The second thing we see in this overview of Psalm is that he asked the Lord to cleanse, and here's what this phrase can mean, unsin him. He asked the Lord to cleanse and unsin him. In verses 7 through 9, look at how he prays. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. This was, hyssop was often, it was a plant that was used like um, a brush. And so uh, sometimes people would apply the blood of, of a lamb over the doorpost with hyssop. It was also used by the priest to spray blood that had been sacrificed on the people so that they would be able to have that cleansing or it would be water splashed on them. One of those two things. And the idea was, is that the hyssop was something that God used to make someone ceremonially clean again. If a leper was no longer able to come into the presence of God's people and God, so hyssop was often used to cleanse the leper. And David is saying, my sin has made me disqualified. Oh God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me like you would a garment and I will be whiter than snow. 
Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. The idea is, in those days, they would take something, a record, and they would blot it out so that it was like it was never there. Blot it out. So he says, cleanse me. Unsin me. Help me to get back to a place where I don't have that between us. You know, a lot of times, you know what sin does? It doesn't, it doesn't just hinder, but a lot of times we become hesitant to pray. We lose our confidence that God would even want to listen to anything we say. We become tentative towards God. We can't even look up to heaven sometimes. And he says, would you, would you cleanse me so all that stuff can be taken out of the way? The third thing he says is he asks the Lord to restore their, his and God's, fellowship. He asks the Lord to restore their fellowship again. You know, in these verses, he's going to say, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. One thing David knows is that even though he has sinned greatly, he still has a covenant relationship with God. He has not lost his relationship. He has not lost his standing before God. What he's lost is the fellowship that he was meant to know with God. He has done things that have pinched that, that have separated him from that kind of fellowship, that have twisted it. And he understands, oh God, please, is there any way that you can restore our fellowship? Not only the way it was before, but also even greater. Can you restore that? Notice verses 10 through 12. Look at what he says. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's not just saying, hey, wash all my sins off me, and then I'm going to go back and do the same stuff, maybe if I want to again. He's saying, no, give me a different spirit about this stuff. Show me how to have a different heart towards you. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say restore to me your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The third, fourth thing he does is he asks the Lord to use him again to honor the Lord. He asked the Lord to use him again. So he says, will you cleanse me, restore me, and use me again? He asked the Lord to use him again to honor him and to help others. Look at verse 13 through 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. In other words, let me live in such a way that my life can be an encouragement and example to other people that have also sinned like I have sinned. Verse 14, save me from blood guilt, O God the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He's saying the worship will once again come from the right spirit, the right heart. Oh God, use me again. How many of us know that when we sin against God, that one of the things that we hear the evil one whisper is, God will never use you again. David knew that he had been disqualified to ever teach someone else God's ways. But he said, if you'll work in my life, I will look for ways to honor you and help other people that want to honor you, follow you. 
That'll be in my heart. That's what I want to see happen, God. That's what you want me to do again. Help me get there, God. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer of true repentance. So what can we learn from this? How do we see if we're tempted today to delay or deny or deflect or downplay, dealing with things that God wants us to deal with, how do we practice true repentance instead of shallow repentance or no repentance at all? How might we do that? Well, here's a couple ideas if you want to follow along with me. True repentance obviously is something, I just wrote this out to the side of my notes, it's Godward. It's God-honoring. It's God-centered. It's not me-centered. And uh, so, therefore, I, I see myself always tempted to keep uh, playing games or downplaying or denying, like I said. So the first thing is that true repentance thinks like God thinks and refuses to rationalize. True repentance thinks like God thinks and refuses to rationalize. By the way, in my notes out to the left, in these four lines, I have, uh, it shows what true repentance actually involves. It involves first on the first line, the word mind. It involves our minds. The second thing is it involves in the second line, emotions. It'll affect our emotions. The third thing that true repentance will do is that it'll affect or it'll involve our will. And the last thing, that I put on my notes, is it will affect our horizontal relationships. Horizontal. So our mind, our emotions, our will, our horizontal relationships. So the first thing here is that true repentance thinks like God thinks and refuses to rationalize. I don't know if you remember the story of the prodigal son, but it says in Luke 15, 17, that here's someone who got far away from his father. And in a far country, the Bible says, then he came to his senses. That means all of a sudden there was a change in his mind. Everything the way he'd been looking at it, now he began to look at it more from his father's point of view. Now he began to look at it and see it for what it really is. And David says, you know what? When I was taking those steps to sin with Bathsheba and sin against Uriah and cover up, it looked a certain way to me. Now, God, I see what it looks like in your sight. Now I see that it's evil in your eyes. You want to know the difference between a godly person and an ungodly person in the Bible? It may surprise you. A godly person tries to live in God's sight, how it looks in God's eyes. An ungodly person says, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. That's what determines how I'm going to live. And David came back to this relationship where he says, oh God, I shafted you. I did what was right in my own eyes at the time, and now I see it from your vantage point. God, my mind is changed about this. The second thing is that true repentance feels godly, not worldly sorrow over sin. True repentance feels godly, not worldly sorrow over sin. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7 that there is this kind of sorrow that can take place where people cry, people even say, I'm sorry, people seem to feel bad, but it's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is the kind that's sorry because now I have to pay the piper. Worldly sorrow is now I'm embarrassed. Now my image took a hit. Now I wonder what the world thinks of me. I wonder how I, I'm going to do in the world. Godly sorrow says, I hurt God. And that's bothering me. And I have injured him and his relationship after all he's done for me. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10, what it says. 
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. When you and I truly begin to say, oh God, help me to see things from your vantage point and to feel what you feel when I do those things to you. A lot of people think that sinning is breaking rules. It includes that, but sinning is breaking relationships. It's hurting people, including God. And when you and I begin to have that sorrow, he said, you know, to the people in the Old Testament, he said, you flood my altar with tears, but you're not thinking of me. You're thinking of yourselves. Come on, godly sorrow will produce in you a great response to what you've done. It'll begin to turn you outward rather than be turned into yourself. The third thing about true repentance is not only does it affect the mind and the emotions, but it affects the will. True repentance chooses to do God's will and takes action. True repentance chooses to do God's will and takes action. I love how it says that the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my father and tell him that I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. Would you make me like one of your hired servants? And the Bible says in verse 20, then he got up and went. He took action. He didn't just go, you know, that'd be a good idea. I don't know about you, but here's where the, here's where the rub really comes for me. I knew that I broke that window. I knew that I needed to go and apologize. Did I do it? No. It showed that I really hadn't changed my mind. It showed that I really hadn't cared a whip what God thought. And it never led to a change of action. But that's what true repentance always does. Some of you may have this experience before. Trish and I flew out to California in June. And as we were getting on the plane, um, I had um, a, a, a pull-along uh, suitcase, and then I also had on a backpack. And I hadn't put the backpack on both shoulders, just one of my shoulders. So as I'm walking through these narrow aisles, I'm whacking people. <laughs> so Trish is behind me, and she sees me whack a guy like in the face right like this she goes you're whacking people now what if i had said okay and just turned to the guy and said sorry and then just kept walking and whack the next person sorry whack the next person is that repentance no way repentance would be okay i gotta figure out how to put this backpack on and not just be saying some shallow, skin-deep, sorry, sorry. And friends, this stuff is epidemic. Not just in other people, but in me. And this kind of stuff, God wants to go to the heart of it and say, come on, true repentance. And that leads to this last thing, that he wants us to understand that true repentance is not only vertical, it's horizontal. It always seeks to get right with God and with others. It always seeks to get right with God and others. Do you remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector in Luke 19? When he met Jesus Christ, here he had, he had defrauded people. He had made money off the backs of people. The very first thing he does is he says, Behold, Lord, now that I've met you, whoever I have stolen from, and he wasn't saying if I have, he says whoever I've stolen from, I will pay back fourfold. I am going to make this right. Let me ask you, those people that got ripped off, do you think they sensed that true repentance was happening in Zacchaeus? Absolutely. 
Years ago, I remember that God led me, before I was ever a pastor, to write a check to my employer for slacking and not giving eight hours work for eight hours pay because I knew I had no credibility with that employer if I ever talked about Jesus the way that I had worked. And maybe he didn't even know about that, but God showed me and God says, I care about him and not just you. Come on, make that right. Friends, it might be writing a letter, it might be making a phone call, it might be writing a check, it might be going to someone. What would it look like? And that's why we avoid. Because sometimes we haven't gotten to a place of true repentance. But when you and I get to that place with God's help, he grants that true repentance. Oh my goodness. So how do we, how do we apply a message like this? How do we practice this? In just a little bit, we're going to give you an opportunity, some space, some time to do that. But let me just ask you to, to turn your notes over, if you would. David eventually would write Psalm 139 too, and he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. And when he wrote that, he was willing to say, see if there is any offensive way in me. In other words, on a regular basis, he just said, search me, God. I don't want to live in some kind of shallow fellowship. I want to live in true fellowship with you. I don't want anything pinching the straw, twisting the straw of our pipeline. So Lord, show me. And so on the back here are questions. If you and I are going to practice true repentance, it begins with confessing and agreeing with God. So first, like David, I confess my sins to you. God, I don't delay, I don't deny, I don't deflect, I don't downplay. Lord, is there any way I'm being dishonest, disobedient, or unfaithful to you? Lord, is there a person I'm guilty of injuring? In word or deed. Lord, is there an inappropriate friendship I need to confess and forsake? Lord, is there a habit or secret sin you want me to admit and abandon? Lord, is there a situation I need to make right or to make restitution like Zacchaeus? And you and I, I've listed some space there, whether it's this morning or sometime this week. What if you were to use those lines and just begin to say, here are the things that God is showing me in my life that are not right with him or not right with others. And I'll tell you, over the years, as I've practiced this from time to time, writing it out and seeing it in print, in my own hand, and trying to be brutally honest and not take the edge off and not try and say, well, when I do that, I am on the road home. It is now out in the light. I can begin to sense that God is dealing with me like he wants to deal with me. And then the second part on that sheet, notice this, second like David I apply or accept and receive your mercy and I trust in your promise to forgive. There are so many verses that I've listed there about forgiveness, but here's what I want to show you. Years ago, I started this practice of writing out my prayers and here's just the back of the sheet. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, submission, listening. But in that second session, I confessed the sin of and I would write those sins and then I would take a red pen and in red, I would write a Bible verse, not of my own idea of what God wanted to do, but what God says. Sometimes I would write, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You said that. That's who you are. You are not like me. You are righteous and true and generous and merciful and gracious, oh God. And I would write those in red to remind me that the only way I have any reason to expect forgiveness is because Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood to pay for and cleanse every sin and to give me a new heart. And that's been helpful to me. 
And today, as we think about practicing confession, I want you to know I'm not interested in you just confessing. I want you to know the hope of restored fellowship and to walk in the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ today. This is why he wants us to do that. So in these next few moments, if you want to turn your notes over, the big idea of the message today is that we're willing to do our part. God, as I repent, will you please restore our fellowship? God, as I take the steps to be as honest and true before you as you want me to be, will you restore our fellowship? And we want to just prepare our hearts for a time of confession and repentance. We're going to do some listening. We're going to do some singing. And then we're going to do some confessing if it's in your heart to do that. But you know, a few years ago, a lady wrote on a card, could we please have some times of confession in our worship services? And I remember she understood, like David did, that it's important to do this. And so I hope this time will be useful to you. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in my inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices whole burnt offerings to delight you, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now we want to take time to practice 
repentance, true repentance, not skin-deep confession. And if you're not comfortable or interested in doing that, we respect that. But we want to make sure we provide an opportunity for it so that you can if it's in your heart to do so. And so if you want to take the back of the sheet, the notes out, and just have maybe a guide or a way of thinking through that, if it would help you to write something down, if you're comfortable doing that, you can do that. But what I've found is a lot of times when the Lord's dealing with me, he usually talks to, about, talks to me about the way I've maybe been using my mouth, what I've been using my eyes to do, what I've been thinking about in my thoughts, the way I've been using my body, my time, a relationship, a situation, the way I work, whatever it might be, what does he want to put his finger on? And again, know his spirit is because he wants truth in the inner parts. And he wants to remove anything that's pinching or hindering or twisting. So take this time now, as the music plays, we're just gonna take time. We're gonna ask God to clean us, clean house, and help us truly repent as a church family. He started out by talking about the straw. What the Lord wants to do through true repentance. Oh, precious is the flow that can make me white as snow, that can restore a fellowship, that can make me useful again. I want you to take your straw home today, and I want you to think about how you can keep short accounts with God and learn from David's prayer. But I want you to imagine with me what would happen as we walk out of this room if God were to answer this prayer. Can you imagine what would happen in our church family if he cleanses us and restores us and uses us again? Can you imagine? And our staff, we, we try and always be conscious when we ding each other, and we do, to keep short accounts, to go back and say, what I did to you, I see it from God's perspective now, and I sinned against him and against you. Would you forgive me? We don't try and make it a huge deal all the time, but it, we try and make those things right with God and with each other. Because we believe that to the extent that we take care of that, God's spirit is able to flow freely in and through our church family to our city and world. But we have no reason to believe that God's presence is going to keep flowing if we don't deal with those things. But can you imagine if we did true repentance on a regular basis, our whole church family? Can you imagine what would happen in our homes? Could you imagine what would happen if that husband driving back from Ohio wasn't so defensive with his wife and said, Honey, I just injured you. I just insulted you. I just offended you. And I, I need to be made right with you. Would you forgive me? Can you imagine what that would do to my kids when they watch that? Can you imagine what would happen between parents and children if this kind of humility took place, this kind of true repentance? 
Can you imagine what would happen in our homes? What we would be replicating, the spirit that we would be passing on to our children. Can you imagine what would happen in your life? Instead of being tentative and doubtful and reserved and pulled back, if instead you were able to be humble and expectant and grateful and teachable and truly repent. Can you imagine what God has in store for your life? So he wants us to remember this. And one more thing. As you walk out today, in the back, we have red pens and baskets. If it would help you to know that with true repentance, it involves applying his promise of forgiveness, his promise of grace and mercy so that we can keep walking with him till we see him in heaven one day. I want to ask the prayer team to come down front. And if it would help you just to stay a few more moments in, in your seat before you leave today, feel free to do that. If you need to go, that's fine too. But I'm going to say a prayer in just a minute. You're always welcome to come up front and kneel. During that last time, I, I regret that I didn't say something about that when we confess or make repentance, sometimes that kneeling helps me just get down on my knees before God and take a humble position. But let me just pray, and then you'll be dismissed. And two thoughts as I pray. One, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never, you've been going your own way and you've never turned, repented, changed your mind and said, I need everything Jesus Christ has done for me and who he is in my life, today can be the day. That might be your step. Maybe you're a Christian already and you just need to restore the fellowship, repair the fellowship. I hope you'll do that this week and weeks to come. Let's pray. Now, Lord, I thank you so much that you invite us and give us the gift of repentance. My experience has been is the people that take repentance most seriously are usually the most deep with you. Help us, Lord, not to be shallow, but to really walk with you the way you intended. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you.